Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. I look forward to having your company here on 3RRR 102.7 on this this very special day, April 25th, Anzac Day. Uh, And I'm joined in the studio today by the indefatigable panel beater. Hi, panel beater. Were you you up at crack of dawn this morning? (laughs) (laughs) I was up at the crack of dawn, but I I didn't go to a dawn service, alas. No, no, I was was planning to... very good intentions. There's a road somewhere that's paved with those, I believe. <laughs> yeah. It leads to hell, I think, is the end of that yes, quote. I believe that. <laughs> um, later on in this show, we'll be talking to Associate Professor Nicola Henry from RMIT about sexual consent and those videos. Uh, also, our regular panel th- panellist, scientist, psychotherapist, Prudence, dear, uh, she was going to be here in person, but um, with a lingering throat issue but COVID negative, out of an abundance of caution, she's relegated herself to the telephone and she's going to be helping us look on this Anzac Day at Veterans Mental Health. Um, And coming up shortly, I'm very excited to say we'll be talking to that media icon, Andrew Denton. Now, Andrew, who you'll know from his ABC TV shows like Enough Rope and Randling, uh, he's just released the second series of his podcast about end-of-life matters, Better Off Dead. I can't wait to talk to him. Uh, but before all that, first, we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the news today, well, we can't get away from COVID and COVID vaccines. So just very briefly, I just wanted to remind people about COVID vaccines because, of course, there's been a bit of a scare going on. People were getting a little bit uh, a little bit freaked out about the potential for blood clots. Um, I don't know, actually, Panel Beater, you're far too young to have had your COVID vaccine yet, aren't you? Yeah, not on the list yet. Yep. <laughs> and I'm old and wrinkly enough to have had my first COVID vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Surely that was not age that was related that was um frontline worker related wasn't it it was entirely related to a combination of <laughs> age and frontline workeriness um but this it's a it's a really really important question because we're in that kind of lull at the moment in australia where there's so little covid circulating i think there's a little bit of that false sense of security um but people have to remember what's going on in europe and the rest of the world in south america north america uh, for that matter um and get this into perspective um, uh, I would really, really strongly encourage those people who are eligible to get the AstraZeneca vaccine just to get out there, roll up your sleeve and get it done. Um, the worst thing for most people with the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's a little bit uncomfortable afterwards. Well, I think we can cope with that because COVID is pretty damn uncomfortable. I don't know if any of your work colleagues or friends been through the COVID experience themselves, panel beater. Um, I've had a uh, couple of students whose parents have caught COVID. That's the closest proximity I've come to. And I think that's one of the difficulties here in Australia is people haven't got that personal experience. Mm. So I'd just like to 
tell those listening, um, a friend of mine who I trained with as a medical student and he became an interventional radiologist at a major hospital in the UK, uh, his email at Christmas time said, well, the year has been pretty awful. Hundreds of my patients have died and three of my colleagues three people, one of whom I trained with, now dead from COVID. So while people are hesitating about the vaccine, I completely understand that um, reports of blood clots and that sort of thing, it's it's intimidating, it is off-putting. Let's get it into perspective. This disease continues to ravage the world. It will come back to this country unless we get people vaccinated. And you, dear listener, you will be vulnerable unless you get yourselves vaccinated. It's now available. GPs have got it. There are mass vaccinations clinics it's actually relatively easy to get this thing um so i'm really encouraging people to get out there and get their vaccines done i've had mine you go and get yours uh, that's it for the news that's all i wanted to do because we've got andrew denton coming up fairly shortly uh he'll be on the phone with us right after these messages you're listening to a triple r podcast Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Somewhere on the road heading towards the Blue Mountains, we have on the phone Andrew Denton. Are you there, Andrew? I am here, Nick. Good morning. Oh, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Just tell us, where are you off to? Uh, we're actually uh, heading. To, to about to turn due uh, west from Batemans Bay and heading towards uh, the, the Alpine Way. And this is a bit of well-deserved rest, I suspect. Well, it's, it's trying to scrabble a few moments of well-deserved rest. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and you say we, who have you got in the car with you? I have my, uh, my wife, Jennifer, who is uh, currently my chauffeur. God bless her. And uh, we've been uh, we've been on the road about three or four days up through uh, Malacuta and Bermagui. It's been beautiful. Oh, how absolutely lovely! Well, do say hi to Jennifer Byrne for us. If, if we run out of things to say, we'll always get her on the line and have a chat with her. I'm sure that listeners would love to hear from her as well. She's the she's the brains of the outfit, so I'll put her on now. <laughs> um, good morning, Jennifer. Hope all's going well on the drive. <laughs> She's waiting. Um, now, Andrew, um, we're, we're going to be talking about your podcast, Better Off Dead. The second series has just been uh, started to come out. Uh, before we even talk about the podcast, just remind listeners who are not familiar, what was it that got you into the whole area of end-of-life matters in the first place? There was two things. And the first I didn't realise at the time, it was watching my own dad die uh, slowly and painfully over three days back in uh, 97 at our local hospital who did the best job they could do and gave him the best they had which is more morphine but it wasn't enough and like many families in that situation we we didn't know what to do about it we were sort of traumatized we didn't talk about it for many years um, and then uh, probably about six years ago I read an article in an Australian magazine by a woman whose dad lived in the Netherlands where they have euthanasia laws and he was dying of cancer and she described going home for his last week and all the farewells to his friends and the honour given and the the, uh, the gentle way in which he passed. And I thought, why, don't, why can't we have laws like that in Australia, uh, you know, comparing the death of uh, this woman's father and my own? So that's what set me on the path. And you, you researched enough to do a whole podcast series, uh, Better Off Dead, the first series which came out a few years ago now. Tell me some of the research that you did, because you went all around the world doing this, didn't you? 
Well, I decided to go to the places where these laws exist because the stories, the very first place I started pretty much was an anti-euthanasia convention in Adelaide. I was very lucky. It's the only one ever held in Australia and they brought in people from all around the world. So I went to that. And I was pretty new to this and uh, they were very generous in allowing me to sit there for three days and I took lots and lots of notes and I interviewed lots of people and I really took their claims of, of what was happening overseas, of um, you know, vulnerable people being coerced to their death and uh, without their consent and I, I took these claims and as my guide to uh, how I was going to question people overseas. So um, I went to... Um, uh, the Netherlands and to Belgium and to Oregon, uh, where laws have existed for about 20 years. And I essentially went to the doctors and the disability groups and the elderly groups uh, and, of course, people who have used these laws and put to them the claims that have been that I'd heard at this convention uh, quite meticulously. And, and what I began to realise is that um, <laughs> we've been sold a bill of goods, that this dark picture of terrible things that were happening overseas came uh, as astonishing news to the people who are actually involved in these laws. So this is a very, very important question, and for people listening who are maybe not too familiar with the turf, um, there has been a lot of um, speculation, or um, you, you often refer to it as fear, uncertainty, as doubt, the FUD uh, connection, um, where, where people are given concerns about voluntary assisted dying and end-of-life matters that what you're saying has turned out not to be the case. So let's deal with a couple of them. Coercion is a very important one. Uh, and you were told at this anti-euthanasia meeting in Adelaide that coercion was a real risk. Um, tell me what you found about the real world. Well, in the real world, what I found uh, is that these laws are very uh, difficult to access. You really have to prove that you are eligible, and it's different between Europe and North America. Uh, essentially, the difference is in Europe, uh, they have uh, what's called unbearable and untreatable suffering, which which can be a, very, a wide range of illnesses, from cancer, which is the main one, through uh, on some occasions through to mental illness. In North America, it's terminal illness and a time frame of six months or less to live. So um, what I found was that all the people involved in this system uh, were uh, incredibly acting with incredible integrity, with great professional integrity, as we expect the medical profession to do. And the very small numbers of people access these laws because it's not an easy thing to do. And there was a doctor in Oregon called Peter Regan who put it very drolly. He said, I don't know why anyone thinks there'd be a stampede towards these laws. Turns out people just don't want to die. <laughs> yes, very well put. And, and in your research, have you found, because it is still asserted, that old people will be coerced, that everybody will want to bump off granny to get the cash? Have you found any evidence that coercion does occur in jurisdictions where these laws exist? No, and um, no, not at all. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting in North America where these laws have existed for years. Not a single um, case has been brought against the doctor on those grounds. In the Netherlands and Belgium, where they have uh, quite extensive committees of review, there have been doctors examined for uh, not carrying out their laws properly. Um, but there's been uh, no um, charges, there's been hearings, there's been no charges as a consequence of that. So I've yet to hear any concrete evidence of that. And it's important when we talk about this to understand that the reason these laws came into existence, particularly in Europe, 
is because there was, as there is in Australia, an underground practice of assisting people to die, and there was no regulation of it. Nobody actually knew the circumstances in which it was happening. And in, in Europe, the push to actually create these laws came from within the medical community. We don't want to be doing this in secret. We don't want to be doing this where these things maybe could be happening. We think this should be regulated. I think that's such an important point. I'm so glad you mentioned it because it's one of the things that's always been obvious to me is that if coercion exists, it's much easier to do it in the absence of a law, much, much harder to do it once the whole thing is regulated. The other, the other area that people get concerned about is what's called the slippery slope, that we'll start off offering voluntary assisted dying to people with terminal illness and all of a sudden we'll have children and anyone who's just feeling a bit sad um, dying at the drop of the hat. Have you found any evidence of this so-called slippery slope? Well, uh, first of all, I'm going to um, uh, just talk a tiny bit about the expression, the slippery slope, because I think it's a bit like the term fake news. It's a very good catch-all, but it avoids any kind of nuance. And uh, the, the point about the slippery slope is if you oppose these laws on moral grounds, then one person being assisted to die is not just a slope, it's a cliff. So if you're at that end of the spectrum, everything is the slippery slope. If you're at the other end of the spectrum, as we have been in Australia, trying to uh, create a compassionate law better than what we currently have for people who are terminally ill and can't be helped, then it's not a slippery slope. It's a hard hill to push legislative reform. It's very, very difficult. So to come back round, to circle back round to your question, um, there have been very minimal changes to the laws in Europe, and as with uh, the existence of the laws in the first place, they went through their parliaments, and they went through their parliaments after significant debate and based on significant evidence with great community support. Now, to my mind, that's not a slippery slope. That's a democratic parliamentary institution in action. In North America, where these similar laws to Australia have existed for 20, more than 20 years now, there's been virtually no changes. But even if there had been changes, Nick, uh, I don't believe that constitutes a slippery slope. The slippery slope is something that you can't control. Um, and uh, the, the other thing to, to say about that is that um, uh, a slippery slope is, uh, you know, what some would argue is a slippery slope now. If, if as a legislature you are trying to address the societal problem, it is slightly mad to suggest that whatever law we have in uh, 2020 must be the law that remains for all time. Communities change, community expectations change, community needs change. And that's why I think the term slippery slope uh, deserves to be pushed back on because it, you need to look at, at the nuance of it. So, for example, in the Netherlands uh, and in Belgium, since bringing their original euthanasia laws, they extended them in, in very particular circumstances uh, to uh, minors, that is, uh, children under the age of uh, 17. Um, but that was only done on the strong recommendation of their paediatric societies and with a, a very strong majority vote in their parliaments after considerable debate. And the circumstances in which that can happen are very, very different and very uh, particularly prescribed compared to the circumstances in which an adult can be euthanized. Now, that may not happen, very possibly won't happen in Australia, uh, and it certainly happened, hasn't happened in North America because different societies have different standards what they think suits their culture. Um, you know, in America and in Australia, we both have guns, but we have completely different gun laws. And I think it's kind of, uh, it's, it's an easy 
argument to push to suggest, oh, look at those laws overseas, we'll have them here. Each country decides for itself what is appropriate. That's, a, that's so well put. Thank you. And I, before we go on to talk about Go Gentle and your latest podcast, um, I just want to tackle one other question. And you've used a, uh, an analogy for this one. When people talk about voluntary assisted dying as a form of suicide, you use the analogy of what happened um, in America with the Twin Towers to help explain the difference. Can you just talk us through that one? Yeah, it's very poignant, but it's a very illustrative. We all remember those terrible images of 9-11 where the, the planes hit the towers and the heat of those fires was so intense it was literally melting the steel that was holding the buildings up. And the people on the top floors, they could feel the heat coming through. They were standing on their desk to avoid it, and we saw what happened. They jumped. Many of them jumped. And the chief medical examiner of New York... Uh, decided not to classify those deaths as suicides but as homicides. He said they were forced from the buildings. And I think that's a very good analogy for assisted dying. It's not making a choice to die. It's making a choice between ways you might die. And it's uh, this is the expression I use in the podcast. Uh, it's a terrible choice, but what would you choose if faced with the fire or the fall? Um, I've, I think many would choose the fall. Thank you. Uh, I think that's an incredibly helpful way of putting it. What we t- talk about with voluntary assisted dying is exa- exactly that. It's not a choice between life or death. It's just a choice between how I die. Let's go and talk about Go Gentle, the organisation, the advocacy organisation you set, set up. Um, talk us through that. Well, um, after going to uh, Europe and North America, I spent a lot of time going around Australia and, and speaking to lots and lots of people about why these laws didn't exist. People had opposed them, people had supported them, and and trying to get my head around the arguments. And what I began to realise is a couple of things. One is that uh, the incidence of uh, what we call bad deaths, and and far worse than what happened to my father, was alarmingly high. I was stunned at how many people had a story. And if you read any article about this in any publication and go to the comments section, you will find... Uh, at least half a dozen or more stories, this is what's happened. And they're, and they're often very contemporary, as in just happened in the last year. So I saw there was a lot of suffering happening, but then I, at the same time I saw um, that there were uh, key medical groups, such as the Australian Medical Association, and at the time Palliative Care Australia, and of course the Catholic Church, and often senior doctors suggesting either that this wasn't happening or that if we just had better systems in place it needn't happen, or that we have all the drugs necessary to make sure it doesn't happen. And the more I understood this and spoke to senior palliative care people and other doctors and nurses, I could see this simply wasn't true. And so I felt there was a a real disparity here. What I saw was powerful groups protecting their positions, like the church and and senior medical groups, against the the weakest uh, people in Australia who were the terminally ill, their families, families who are often traumatised, and the elderly. And uh, so I, I felt uh, there were dying with dignity groups around Australia who had been working away at this magnificently and diligently for years. But they were often um, uh, made up of older people who didn't really have skills in digital communications or uh, contemporary media skills, which is, was my background. So I decided to set up a group that was, would bring in professionals, not just in media and communication, but in... Uh, political lobbying as well and uh, 
Ooh, it sounds like we may have just had a little dropout somewhere in the middle of the Blue Mountains there. Uh, we're halfway through uh, an interview with Andrew Denton, that well-known media icon commentator. And in this context, we're talking about voluntary assisted dying and his new season podcast, Better Off Dead. Um, and we're just trying to see what Telstra can do for us, but I'm getting a little wave and arm. So... Um, we will take. We will go to a little break, and we'll come back in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We were talking with Andrew Denton. We had the great privilege to get him on the phone while he was heading off on his holiday in the car. And somewhere in the Blue Mountains, Telstra's tower has collapsed oh. or the phone has done something. And we've lost him, which is a great pity because uh, we were just kind of moving on to talking about Go Gentle, his advocacy organization. Um, and then we were going to hear a little more about his podcast, the second edition of which has just come out. Such a clear communicator, isn't he, Dr. Nick? He's on such a sensitive uh, issue. It isn't here. And I absolutely take my hat off to Andrew. He's a man who has spent years of his life investigating this. I think this man knows more about this area of voluntary assisted dying than anyone I've come across. And for full disclosure, I am on the board of Dying with Dignity Australia and work in this field. Um, I consider myself reasonably well informed and I'm always absolutely in awe of what Andrew has done and what he knows about this. And, and also, not just his passion, um, but his patience uh, with the people who <laughs> argue with him and, and spread. And, and I love his acronym FUD, Fear, mm. Uncertainty mm. and Doubt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it is an area riddled with misinformation and disinformation. We're just um, in the absence of Andrew, I'll put you on the spot for a moment, Dr. Nick, with your insight. Where's the, what's the nature of the current resistance? You know, those, those, those people that um, are, you know, being a bit obstinate, what, what, what do they have in common? So the biggest group that oppose voluntary assisted dying come from the religious right. And no doubt that the biggest objection is faith-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of us who work in the field have absolutely no problem with people conscientiously objecting for whatever reason, personal or faith. Uh, the time I get a little bit toey is when that faith aspect of it is hidden and it's dressed up as being about these aspects like coercion and calling mm-hmm. it suicide. Uh, and this is where I would say we're moving from uh, a reasonable objection to a misrepresentation. I do want to just uh, on behalf of Andrew who we lost and Andrew thank you if you're still listening uh, in your vehicle there thank you so much for giving us your time I realise that you're on your way on holiday (laughs) very generous of you Um, but we didn't get a chance just to talk about and I just want to mention the second series of Andrew's podcast called Better Off Dead so the first series was an incredible examination of end of life matters and the possibility of laws covering voluntary assisted dying Since that first series, of course, Victoria enacted the laws. The law began in June 2019 
here in this state. And Andrew's second series, Better Off Dead, is about how that law is working. And it is a fascinating a series of interviews with people who've been through the process, family and relatives, talking to older people, people who are unwell, talking to uh, legislators, talking to the doctors, including myself, who've been involved in the field. And of course, it is beautifully packaged and put together. It is an absolutely fascinating podcast. So better off dead. If you haven't heard it, then get onto it and have a listen to it. Um, I should remind people that we have been talking about very personal, complex matters, end of life and so on. If this has raised any issues for you, if this is distressing in any way at all, remember you can contact Beyond Blue or there's always Lifeline, which is an incredible service available 24 hours a day on 13114. So, unfortunately, we missed out on hearing the end of Andrew, but we're very lucky to get any of Andrew Denton. He's in short supply, um, (laughs) spreads himself incredibly. He's on holiday. I hope he has a fantastic time. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're listening to Radiotherapy with me, Dr Nick, and panel beater in the studio. And now, having uh, relegated herself to home because of a slightly croaky voice, we have the slightly croaky Prudence, dear. Good morning, Prudence. Good morning. Morning, Nick. I think more than slightly croaky this morning, but there we go. I hope you can understand me. I can understand you loud and clear. You do sound as though you had a big night with far too many cigarettes. Well, yeah, it's been a long time since I've done that, uh, Nick, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, no, I've been a bit like this all week. And I did have my COVID test. I'm all clear. But, uh, yes, I'm not allowed near you or anyone in the studio. So, well, just, we go. just quickly, since we're on the COVID question, how yeah. easy and quick was it to get the COVID test done? Easy. I, had a, I just walked into one of my local hospitals. I waited maybe 10 minutes and they stuck the swabs in me and then I did that in the morning and I got the text uh, in the evening. So, so again, so easy, let's, have a re- let's have a reminder for listeners, if you have any symptoms of any kind, please go and get yeah, tested. It's it. crucial that we still test everybody because we can't know it's not around if we don't test people to prove uh, it's not right. around. Thank we you. need all those negative tests. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, so so yeah. tell me, Prudence, as a, as a psychotherapist yourself who works in the field of mental health all the time, it's yeah. Anzac Day today, uh, you've been having a think about veterans' mental health. Yeah, veterans' mental health health and I mean look um, you know um, it's often something that maybe gets a bit little overlooked I've, I actually work with some veterans and um, uh, earlier this week uh, the, uh, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced the establishment of a Royal Commission to look into um, uh, veteran suicide so we're going to talk a little bit about suicide so again perhaps a bit of a content warning if that's a topic that's a bit too sensitive for you come back in 10 minutes or something um, and we'll also I'll give some phone numbers at the end as well if you want to talk to somebody but I guess you know there's there's been a lot of talk over quite a few years about the incidence of suicide amongst in particular you know in, in veterans um, and uh, it's there's not a lot of data on it um, it's quite difficult to find out what's going on and there's been calls for a royal commission for several years and in particular in the light I think because of increasing numbers of of ex-service people 
you know, it's, it's difficult to make really good statistical comparisons. And I think a lot of this gets lost in the statistics, unfortunately. But can I, can but, I ask you, Prudence, sorry to interrupt, but can I ask you, when you yeah. say that about data, but one of the things I understand as a, a very simple piece of data is, is that more of our veterans die from suicide than die in action. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. So depending on what numbers we look at, but it's indisputable. So since, 20, since 2001, since we went off into Afghanistan, um, 43 serving uh, personnel, members of the ADS, have died. According to the according to the role of honour at the Australian War Memorial, um, but also since then the number of people who have committed suicide sorry I shouldn't say commit who have suicided um, could be as much as seven hundred. Oh, that's just seven hundred forty, right? And I think you know I do wonder. Um, and sadly, talking about roles of honour, back in the old days, and I'm not sure what happens now, but back in the old days, for example, at the end of the First World War, with the roles of honour, people's names who died in combat, those who died by suicide were excluded from the roles of honour. So, then, you know, they were ignored. And I think, OK, look, we know how there's a lot of taboo, there's a lot of stigma around suicide, and possibly one of the greatest myths is it's it's cowardice, you know, and so you can see that perhaps within a military context, it's not something that people want particularly to talk about. But what we do know is that um, on following discharge, so actually interestingly as well, the rates of suicide within serving personnel is actually really low. Um, so, now, so let me just get that right. So within serving personnel, it's low. So yeah. this is after people have finished their service. Once, yeah, once they've been discharged. And in fact, so those who've had a medical discharge or been discharged involuntary um, are more likely to have quite, you know, a, a higher incidence of suicide amongst those groups, and especially the medical discharge ones, who could be three to four times higher than what we might think is the sort of the national average um, as I say, the stats are a bit difficult here because, you know, the ADS is not like average. You know, they are largely men, they are largely younger and fit and live in a probably what fairly regimented way. So, um, you know, comparing apples with apples is a bit difficult. But, you know, 700 people have died by suicide since, uh, since 2001. So if we're, and, if we're recognising that this is horrifically common, um, yeah. presumably there are at least some, some measures taken by um, defence to help oh, with this. Yes, yes look, I mean, defence and DVA, uh, so, you know, um, the Department of Veteran Affairs provide um, various supports to veterans, both for their mental and physical health. Um, and there are services accessible. So there are, um, and there's special parts of that. There's one called Open Arms, which, uh, you know, provides mental health uh, services, and also another one called Safe Zone, and I can give you the phone numbers for those when we, before we wrap up. Um, but, I mean, the thing, the thing is that nobody really knows what's going on. I mean, probably one of the things that needs to be kind of questioned is, yeah, is what is happening to, to these people? They get discharged. They maybe have trauma. They maybe um, have other, you know, psychiatric conditions like severe anxiety or depression. Um, and are the, how are they being able to access services and, um, and how easy is it that for them, um, both from the perspective perhaps of wanting to feel again that, that it's not stigmatised to have uh, mental health uh, issues. Um, 
And that's really why there's been an ongoing call for a Royal Commission. And the Royal Commission really does need to look into not only um, a, a suicidal, you know, the suicides, but also kind of suicidal behaviour. In other words, they need to be also... We don't have any data around suicidal ideation about people who have thoughts of, of, of killing themselves, um, um, as well as actual attempts. So the data we have are those which are completed suicides at the moment, and I think we need to broaden the spread the scope of investigation. It would, seem to, me, it, it would seem to me that fairly obviously it needs to be broadened to say people who've been in the Defence Force, particularly, as you're saying, with a medical discharge, are clearly at significant risk and that those people should have services provided regardless of where their mental yeah. health is as a preventative, if not a treatment. Yeah. Do you know what what the what that um, what the state of play is at the moment in terms of what um, medically discharged veterans are provided with? Look, as I say, they can apply through, for example, through the Department of Veteran Affairs for various supports, and they will get mental health supports through in terms of uh, psychologists and so on. So they can access those, but they do need to go and sort of get them. And uh, I think there's a degree of bureaucracy around that um you know they will need to get referrals and so on but like you know the, like those in civilian life have to as well um and I, but i think you know it's, it's that sort of it really we need to have a look at what systems are in place and it would be good that, that a royal commission could actually look into um how do um how do um veterans access these services how easy are they to get to and probably something that's very important as well, and this has been raised by um, a few commentators, in particular Ben Wadden, who's the Associate Professor at Flinders University, and Deborah Morris, who's a military analyst at Griffiths, and they've written a few articles around this and really calling for you know, a, um, um, a Royal Commission that, has, um, that gives protection to witnesses. It's very difficult for people to come forward, especially if you're a public employee, and make comments about the your employer and there needs to be adequate um, protections really so that witnesses can make honest statements about their experiences so it's about independence i think it's very important that there's an independent commission that people can speak freely and that it has a wide-ranging Scope um, to really make a difference here. Again, as a a bit of self-disclosure, a member of my family has been uh, in the uh, army reserves for a long time as a captain, and um, I've heard a lot of stories about what goes on in the army. I have to say, I've been incredibly impressed by the stories of how the army has been making very strenuous efforts to change culture, uh, to embrace um, gender and understanding about some of the things which, uh, as as someone who was previously heavily biased in my opinions, I was not expecting. So I'm glad to hear that um, the Defence Force are are taking some of these steps. So you're you're, you're sounding very croaky and getting croakier by the second group. I'm sorry to to cut you short, but I want you to sign off. But I do want to hear some of those contact details please because people yes. listening to this well, who want to know where to go uh, just as always us, yeah. first of the list is, is lifeline on 13 11 14 but also for veterans safe zone right is on 1800 142 02 no 72 sorry I, I get I say that again 1800 142 
0472. I'll say that in a non-croaky voice. But it is, and that's 24-7. Yeah, for veterans, 1800 um, Prudence, yeah. Prudence um, thank you for your time. I'm sorry to hear the voice. Yeah, take, sorry, I couldn't join you today. No, take, take that voice away. Treat it with some honey and lemon. Um, I'm told on reliable medical advice that the addition of a little whiskey or brandy is particularly beneficial. Okay, I'll take my doctor's advice then. <laughs> uh, Prudence, lovely to talk to you. That was Prudence Dear talking Thank about you. veterans' mental health. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We've now got Associate Professor Nicola Henry. Um, Nicola is from RMIT and uh, an expert in matters of sexual violence. And I want to talk to her particularly about those sexual consent videos. Nicola, good morning. How are you? Hi, Nick. Hi, Prudence. Lovely to hear your voice. Thank you for joining you us. Thank you for joining us this morning. Let's dive straight into it. Before we talk about the videos themselves, just tell us who you are, where you work, what your area of expertise is. Okay, thanks, Nick. So I'm an Associate Professor and ARC Future Fellow at RMIT University in the Social and Global Studies Centre. I'm doing most of my research the past two decades has been focused on sexual violence, um, I've done work on uh, international war crimes trials and prosecuting sexual violence there. I've done some work on improving the laws in relation to rape and sexual assault in, in the Australian context. I've done a bit of work on investigating what works in terms of preventing sexual violence and harassment. I'm also working on a project at the moment looking at alternative reporting options for sexual assault victim survivors. And probably the main research that I'm involved in at the moment is looking into the extent, nature and impacts of technology-facilitated sexual violence. And this includes the non-consensual sharing of intimate images, also known as revenge porn. Wow. So, so the technology side of things to the use of social media and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So um, the project that I'm currently working on looks at um, the role of digital platforms in terms of how they um, provide... Uh, content removal or policies and practices in relation to internet images being shared on their platforms. Um, But yeah, essentially I've kind of looked at a whole range of different angles to sexual violence, including the perpetration of it, uh, how victim survivors experience it and, and how the law and society responds to it. Absolutely fascinating stuff and uh, as someone who's a complete Luddite when it comes to social media but I was reading a story in The Age just this morning about a a rape allegation against someone and I think it was Snapchat was it that all the messages were where the messages just disappear and can't be found again? Yeah, yeah I mean there's also other sites too where where, um, that also occurs but of course a person can take a screenshot and capture the image before it disappears and then that image can be shared on widely. So it is a huge issue and um, I mean in some cases too it's not just images being shared but it's also um, online dating apps and uh, people uh, meeting up in person and sexual predators essentially um, trying to find victims to sexually assault in person. So there are a whole range of issues as far as sexual violence is concerned in the online kind of environment. 
Well, we'll come back to those when we in a second, but um, you sound perfectly qualified to comment on exactly the question that's come up over this last week or 10 days, which is those consent videos. Now, for people who haven't seen them, um, could you just briefly describe for us, um, I think the best known one is the milkshake video. Yeah, so the milkshake video is part of the Australian government's $7.8 million Respect Matters campaign, which provides consent education for young people. Um, It's got videos, stories, podcasts and activities for children from years 6 to 12. The video, the milkshake video, uh, costs $3.8 million, so it used up nearly half of the total budget that the government had allocated to its Respect Matters initiative. Now, for those of you who haven't seen the video, um, it depicts a teenage girl asking a boy to try her milkshake in a retro diner. And when he says he's happy with his own milkshake, she smears her milkshake all over his face and says, drink it, drink it all. Yes, and I've I've, <laughs> I've seen this I've seen this video, and I, I watched it right at the start of the whole furore about it, and I thought, ooh, interesting metaphor. I like a good metaphor, and um, they sort of inverting the dominant paradigm because she's the one who's being a bit aggressive towards him, and so in my naive manner, I thought, well, maybe this is quite good, but it's been widely pilloried, hasn't it? It has. Look, when I watched the video. I I couldn't believe it, and I'm still shocked by it. I've got a pretty good understanding of the legal and social definitions of consent, but I had a really hard time deciphering the key message of the video. And I was reading the Saturday paper yesterday, and there's a um, comedian um, and journalist called Sammy Shah, and he said, the videos are utterly confusing, but even if you understood what consent was before watching them, afterwards you would not be so sure anymore. And so what came into my mind was I was feeling utterly confused after decades of research in this field, and I was imagining how a young person would feel who watched the video. And I've got it, like, I think I understand what you're saying. Like, it's, you know, it's good to kind of subvert um, stereotypes about gender, and I think that's what they were trying to do. And I think also they were trying to kind of insert humour and, you know, the use of the metaphor. All those things are perfectly fine. There were so many different problems with the video. I mean, first of all, it was creepy and weird, I thought. Yes. I mean, obviously, this is <laughs> yes. my, my opinion. <laughs> um, the second, uh, the video depicts a female perpetrator and a male victim. Mm-hmm. And as again, you know, it's important to, to recognise that it's not always the case. But the research does strongly show that men are far more likely to be perpetrators of rape and sexual assault. And women and girls are far more, li- more likely to be victims. But the the video is also incredibly paternalistic and patronising to young people. So it completely fails to address sexual desire or pleasure. It doesn't even talk about sex. It's also what we'd call heteronormative. It only focuses on consent and heterosexual relationships. And finally, there's a complete failure to consult with respectful relationships and sexuality education experts who know the evidence about what works with young people, sex and consent. And so it's no wonder that young people turn to pornography to get the education on sex when this is the kind of education that's available to them. It seems a little bit extraordinary that we can fork out literally millions of dollars on a product which experts like yourself look at and uh, it takes about two minutes to say this is not the right way to do it. There, there are examples of what is seen as something more approaching the right way to do it. Do you want to tell us how people have done this better elsewhere? 
Yeah, so, well, first of all, as I've already mentioned, Nick, um, it's important that there's consultation with young people, with victim survivors as well, and also with the experts. So that's kind of like, you know, number one priority. The second priority is the straightforward language. That's really important. It needs to use the words about sex and consent, and it shouldn't shy away from that. It shouldn't treat young people as, you know, too uh, precious to, to be engaged in these conversations, particularly because... Um, the research demonstrates that, on average, boys have seen pornography by the age of 13 and girls by the age of 16. So they know what sex is and they shouldn't, you know, we should be addressing that head-on. Um, other, I'll give you some examples in a second about some good models, but I guess just another kind of feature is that these kind of education videos need to be inclusive and, and not just focused on heterosexual couples. I don't think... It's, it works to demonise men and boys. I think it can alienate them. So I think the other thing it should do is embrace a sex-positive approach. So looking at pleasure and desire and not shying away from that and not taking an abstinence or a risk-averse approach, which evidence suggests just doesn't work. I don't think scaring young people about going to jail for rape or sexual assault works either. Uh, Humour... It can be used, and humour can be so effective. And this uh, milkshake video obviously tried to use humour, but they did such a bad job of it, so it needs to be done very carefully. Um, otherwise, it can risk trivialising sexual violence, or it can be completely cringeworthy and something that a young person would just not be interested in if they don't get the humour right. Well, you, 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 say, you say correctly in my view about the humour with the milkshake video, because I didn't th- find anything remotely funny about it. I think you used the word bit creepy. Uh, that's certainly how it came across to me. Yeah, it wasn't funny at all. Like I just, I just didn't get it. <laughs> um, but, but I think the most important thing in a consent education video that needs to be done is to have a clear message, not something that's cryptical, confusing. So I'll just give you two examples here, Nick, about two campaigns that I think work well. Okay. One is, one is a New Zealand government campaign about porn and young people called... Now, hang on. Do I detect a little oh, bias sorry. in your voice here? Because you said the New Zealand... <laughs> and I detect an accent here that may mean that this is not an impartial view. <laughs> no. Um, you do... Yes, I, I am from New Zealand originally, but I have lived here for a long time, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay, that renders you impartial. Sorry to interrupt. Carry on. No, no, that's funny. Um, there's there's a, a New Zealand government campaign about porn and young people, and it's called Keep It Real Online. It uses humour, so it has um, two pornographic actors knocking on the door of a, in a family home. The mother opens the door, and they're completely naked, the, the two porn stars, and they say to the mum, your son's been watching porn online. He's watching it on his phone, on his iPad, on his laptop, and the mother just looks completely shocked, and the boy kind of comes to the door and looks absolutely aghast that these porn stars that he's been watching have appeared at his door. But what's good about that video is that the message is very clear and it's about um, young people watching porn and what they see online is different to how sex is in real life. And the other thing too, the mum takes an earnest stride in this video. So the message is about parents having the important conversations about porn and sex with their kids. It's very, very clear. It uses humour and um, it's appealing to young people. You know, it works I think it's excellent. The other the other video I just wanted to mention, which you may also have seen, Nick, um, is called the Tea Consent Video. And essentially, also it uses humour. It doesn't shy away from these difficult conversations. It uses drawings and it uses this metaphor, which I think you'd really like, about a cup of tea. And so 
essentially the message is, is that consent to one act on one occasion doesn't mean consent to a different act or on a different occasion. Mm-hmm. So do you want a cup of tea? No, I don't want a cup of tea. Um, you might want a cup of tea on one day, but you might not want the cup of tea on another day. You don't want a cup of tea when you're unconscious or asleep. And that both of those videos are excellent, and I think the milkshake video was really trying to copy the tea consent video, and it failed miserably. Uh, Nicola, that's absolutely fascinating, and thank you so much for your time. Um, I heard you say previously in the intro um, that you've also looked at international war crimes, you've looked at um, the prevention of sexual violence, uh, which are obviously crucial topics, which sadly we do not have time to touch on today. But I'd love to get you back another time to talk in more detail about other aspects of your work. Um, If we can drag you into the studio even, that would be completely lovely. Thank you very, very much for your time today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Nicola Henry, um, all too brief, unfortunately, from RMIT, uh, but an associate professor there talking about those consent videos. Um, My goodness gracious, uh, $7.8 million, and that's the best that we can do. Oh, Please, um, whoever's organising next time, can you go and talk to Nicola first? Please, just I'm sure she could mop up some of your next tranche of $7.8 million. <laughs> oh, look, it's nearly time to wrap up. Um, there are still a few days in April, so I just want to remind people that we're in April Amnesty, uh, and this is your chance to show your love and support for the station. And if you do resubscribe during April, you could cop one of our amazing bag of prizes. And we've got some seriously good stuff uh, all online. You can have a look and see, but some fantastic prizes, vouchers and prizes. Oh, too many to mention. Um, anyway, uh, our income did drop during 2020, not surprisingly because of COVID. So we really, really want you, dear listeners, to resubscribe, donate or both. And remember that all donations over $2 are tax deductible. So jump on to rrr.org.au for more information about the April amnesty and all the luscious prizes. Uh, it just remains to say thank you to our guests, the magnificent Andrew Denton and the fabulous Nicola Henry from RMIT, the croaky prudence dear, uh, one of our regular panellists, and Panel Peter. Hi, this is Panel Peter. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.